The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Very grateful to have had Pastor Joe Mulroney fill in last week. As many of you have taken the time to let me know uh, what a blessing that uh, his sermon on prayer was to you last week. And Joe's a faithful servant. He's a, a dear friend and fellow worker in the kingdom of, of God. And I, I have great love and respect for him. And I'm thankful for his heart to, to serve and willingness to come and serve uh, here last week. But this morning we find our way to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This morning, instead of reading the entire text at the beginning of the message, I'm going to let it unfold as we sort of work our way through the text. So you can just find, find your way there and, and mark it, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get the story as we move along. This morning I want to just talk about this issue of what it means to be a Christian. And I want to frame being a Christian with one simple phrase. Being a Christian means trusting in Jesus. It means trusting in Jesus. We talk an awful lot about what it means to be a Christian, how one becomes a Christian, and what it means to be saved. And we use lots of language and verbiage. And sometimes they can get quite confusing as to precisely what is meant by the language. It can almost come off as sort of a Christianese that's hard to define. And so I want this morning for you to see what it means to be a Christian, that it means trusting in fully in Jesus. And that's going to unfold for us in the text this morning. Although that phrase isn't found in the, in the text, everything about what we're going to encounter in the narrative this morning is teaching us what it means to fully trust in Jesus. We're going to come alongside a, a, a man who's going to become a very prominent figure in the whole of the New Testament, a man named Peter. And we're going to walk alongside him as he understands in a very sort of vivid and graphic way most likely for the first time in his life, what it truly means to fully trust in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not following a certain set of rules. Being a Christian is not about um, new rituals to add to your life, going to church, doing Christian things. Being a Christian is not about simply affirming a set of beliefs or a set of doctrines intellectually. It's not about affiliating with a particular church or a particular denomination. Being a Christian is not about embracing a particular moral code in general. Being a Christian is not even about being a good person. Being a Christian has impacts in all of those areas, but that's not primarily what it's about. Being a Christian... Is about trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. And we have to capture this concept. We have to understand what it means to know Christ and to be trusting in him. It is the foundation of everything we believe as Christians. And it is the foundation to a definition of what it means to be a Christian. And it is for us the theme of this text. As I mentioned, we're going to encounter a man by the name of Peter who has his life radically changed by Jesus Christ. And for the very first time, I believe, in this encounter, he comes to a place where he fully trusts in Christ. And, and, and he's never the same after this. 
This event becomes a, a turning point in Peter's life in every single way. Everything about him is different in the afternoon of this day than it was in the morning. Peter's not going to change Peter, but trusting in Jesus is going to change Peter, and he'll never be the same. This theme of trusting God is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible. It is a theme that is replete in the, in the Old Testament, almost from cover to cover. Without taking too much time, I just want to give you a quick survey of some texts in the Old Testament where this theme and this issue comes up. Trusting in God is a foundation to a relationship with God, and it always has been. You could go all the way back to something like 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We've got some conflict going on. We've got the Assyrian army in 2 Kings that's, that's sort of blown through the whole landscape of the region and has, has destroyed anybody who stood in its path. And they've now, now come up against God's people and they're threatening to destroy them as well. And God's people are caught in a bind. What are we going to do? This incredible army has come against us and they've demolished everyone and the odds don't look very good for us. What are we going to do? Well, God's people have always done a certain thing in such circumstances. They've chosen to trust God, to trust God. And that's what God's people were doing. But the enemy comes, and in, in a sample from this text in, in chapter 19, verse 10, you have a, a, an emissary from the Assyrians who's come to basically lay out the case for why God's people need to just lay down their arms and surrender. And in the midst of his argument for why they need to do that, here's something that he says that's pretty remarkable. He tells the people to go to Hezekiah, their king, the king of Judah, and say to him this, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. It's a remarkable warning to God's people. Hey, you, hey, you Israelites, don't you go thinking that trusting in God's gonna be enough for you. Don't you go thinking that that's gonna be enough for you to stand against the king of Assyria and his army. You have no idea what's coming. In fact, he goes on to make the argument, you can look at all the other nations that we've demolished along the way, and many of them trusted in their gods too, and, and that hasn't worked out so well for them, and it's not gonna work out too well for you either. That God in whom you trust you better quit trusting in him because it's about to get you killed. Well, you can read 2 Kings 18 and 19 and you can find out what happens when God's people trust God when the odds are against them. I'll give you sort of the cliff note. A hundred and some thousand of the Assyrian army gets killed overnight by the Lord and the Assyrian army goes running home with his tail tucked between its legs. Because they found out what it's like to stand up against the people of God who trust in God. It's a theme all throughout the narratives of the Old Testament. It's a theme all throughout the Psalms. Just a quick survey of that. Psalm 9, right at the beginning of the Psalter, verses 9 and 10 of this Psalm. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name, what do they do? They put their trust in you, Lord. That's what they do. 
Psalm 20, verse 7, he talks about in the Psalms what, what other people do. Some people trust in chariots. Some people trust in horses, a.k.a. the Assyrian army. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What makes us who we are is we trust in God. Our trust is in him. And it's an active trust, and it's a present trust, and it's a continuous trust. Whatever comes at us, our lives are in his hands, and we trust in him. We trust God. Psalm 31, verse 13. For I hear the whispering of many, the psalmist writes, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you're my God. My times are in your hand. That's what it means to trust God. To trust in God is to say, God, my, my times are in your hands. It doesn't matter what's happening outside. Psalm 40, verse 4, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. He doesn't put his trust in people. He doesn't put his trust in the other things of the world. He puts his trust in the Lord, makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 56, verse 53, the psalmist writes, when I'm afraid, what do I do when I'm afraid? Say it with me. I put my trust in you. I put my trust in you. In God, in whose word I, I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In Psalm 115, toward the end of the, the Psalter, why, beginning in verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. A few pages over in your Bible, in Proverbs 3, verse 5, if you, if you know any of the Proverbs by heart, you may know that one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own what? Your own understanding. I bet that's echoing in Peter's head as he walks through the end of this day that we're about to look at. Jeremiah, the prophets talk about this. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart run, turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He'll dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Well, that sounds miserable. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It, it doesn't fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it's not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Cursing comes from placing our trust in anything but the Lord. Blessing comes from trusting in him. 
Peter's going to learn what it means to trust in God because he's going to see God face to face, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to learn something about fully trusting in him. Peter knows Jesus already by the time we get to this event. He knows a lot about Jesus. He's drawn to his teaching. He's seen his power on display in various circumstances. And he even has, as we're going to see, a very healthy respect for Jesus. But Peter is not yet fully trusting in Jesus. And Jesus intends to fix that in a very vivid way. And the question that I hope hangs in the air this morning as we work our way through this text is simply this. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you fully trusting in Jesus? And if not, why not? Are you trusting in Jesus? If not, why not? Well, Luke sets up the context for us here at the very beginning. He's a good historian. He does this on occasion. And he tells us in the first three verses here the following. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. So he tells us here right at the beginning, he says on one occasion, and when Peter, or excuse me, when Luke writes this, he's giving us really an indefinite time marker. He doesn't tell us how specifically this relates to the text immediately preceding it. He just says on one occasion. So we're not told exactly where this fits chronologically uh, in relation to the text immediately before us. Uh, It could have been a a, a time period that that passed in between, or it may have been immediately following what just took place uh, in Capernaum. My suspicion is, and my uh, sort of hunch is that this happens either immediately following what Luke has just recorded or sometime very, uh, in very close proximity to that particular event. And I'll tell you why in a bit. But what's happened is this. Jesus' popularity has spread. We already know because we've been studying Luke's gospel that he's done some pretty incredible things. He's gone into some synagogues and he's taught some pretty remarkable things that captured people's attention. He's gone into one particular synagogue, the one in the town by near which this happens, and he has encountered a a screaming demoniac and he's cast the demon out of that man. He's gone to Peter's home and he's healed his mother-in-law from a, a, a deadly fever. And he spent half the evening, at least one night, healing everybody that people brought out to him. So word is traveling pretty fast about this Jesus guy. And people are flocking out to them. You couldn't turn on your TV and tune into what's going on. They didn't have the news highlights. If you wanted to find out what was happening, you had to actually go on site and find out for yourself. And find out for yourself is what a lot of people were doing. And by the time we get to this particular event... This crowd has, has swelled to a massive proportion. This is a highly populated area, uh, likely a couple million people in the region, and people are flocking to Jesus. And on this particular occasion, he's teaching by what Luke calls here the, the, the Lake of, of Gennesaret. Uh, it's also called by some other names, but the problem is this. Uh, the, the crowd has spread, and Jesus is there uh, by the sea, And they've gathered in, and they're sort of crushing in to hear what he has to say. 
Now, in case it throws you off a bit, Luke calls this the Lake of Gennesaret. If you read the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark refer to it as the Sea of Galilee. John tends to call this place the, the Sea of Tiberias. But don't let that trip you up. Those are all legitimate names for the same body of water. I've got a little, little drone flyover uh, footage here that, that will show you, just to give you some sense of, of what this area looks like today. Uh, you'll, you'll have to forgive YouTube if an uh, advertisement pops up. We don't endorse whatever might pop up. But if you, if you get a sense here for what this area sort of looks like today, uh, this, this area leading up to the Sea of Galilee, uh, you're going to find that, that the, the sea itself is really more like a lake. So Luke calls it here the Lake of Gennesaret. And, and, and it really is, at least in our terminology, more like a lake. Uh, than it is a sea. When you and I think of a sea, we think of something like the Mediterranean Sea. We think of something like uh, the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. But this is more of a, of a lake. It's 13 by, about 13 by 8 miles, so 13 miles that way and 8 miles that way, whichever direction that is. And, and it's, it's really a, just a large fishing lake. There was a, a really thriving sort of fishing industry that took place on this particular lake. And there were little towns like this one that popped up sort of all along the edge of the, the lake. And if you were to go there today, you could drive along here. And you could see that this is actually at Capernaum right here. That weird-shaped building there is right over where Peter's home was. The synagogue was just to the right. So it's in this area right here where these events that we're reading about today take place. But you could see along the Sea of Galilee, uh, some modern cities have popped up in various places. And some of these locations that we'll refer to in the Bible, uh, you'll see cities built on those locations now, but not so much in Capernaum. Uh, just the historical site and the archaeological dig that's over Peter's home in the synagogue right there. But you get a sense for what this place looks like. It's a large lake, if you will, with sort of mountains surrounding it on all sides. And uh, it's not a, a, a thing that's impossible to cross, but it is far enough out and deep enough that uh, you can get yourself into a bind in a, in a primitive boat if a storm crops up and storms would blow up and that's going to become an issue later on as we work our, our way through there. But there's a, a flourishing fishing industry that was going on here and we find this man Peter and, and the other gospel writers, that's enough for us. You get the idea? You get an idea what it looks like? All right. Uh, this guy Peter, the other gospel writers tell us his brother Andrew is with him on this occasion. And, and also, they're unnamed in Luke, but James and his brother John are their uh, faithful fishing companions as well. Uh, they were all fishermen who did this for a living. They were professional fishermen. That's what they did. They went out into the sea and they caught fish and they sold them, and that's how they supported their families. And so the setting is, we're by the sea, and this fishing industry is happening around us. A crowd has come in, and they're pressing in on Jesus. And the problem is, he's backing up to the water, and there's no, nowhere to go from there. And the crowd is pressing in, and so he's not able to effectively communicate to where everybody can hear him because the crowd is so large, and he can't get enough distance between him and the people to be able to project so that he can be heard. And so that's the problem that's happening. And so Jesus sees a solution. And his solution is to make a floating pulpit and an aquatic sound system, right? That's what he does. He looks over and he sees two empty boats that nobody's using at the moment. So he hops into one. He chooses a particular boat, Peter's boat. And uh, he's going to get in and he's got a plan. Now Luke tells us that the fishermen are still nearby. 
Uh, they, they, they haven't gone away. They're nearby when all this is taking place. And he tells us what they're doing. They're washing and they're mending their nets. And that's important for us to understand to set up the context of the story. Because if you were a professional fisherman in this time, you didn't fish in daylight. You fished at nighttime. Especially when you fished the way that Peter and these guys fished. They fished, if you will, by what we would call a really large dragnet. They would go out and they would cast that dragnet out and they would have two boats. They would uh, largely stretch that dragnet between the two boats and they would let, it, let the sinkers drop it and then they would circle the boats around and sort of scoop up all the fish in the net. But in order for that to work, the fish have to be relatively close to the surface of the, of the, of the water because they didn't have dragnets that would go all the way to the bottom. This, this sea could go down to like 150, 160 feet deep in, at different parts. And so you fished at night because at nighttime, the, water, the, the temperature went down and the cooler water temperatures brought the fish to the top to feed. And so any professional fisherman knew if you wanted to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret, you did that at nighttime when they came up to feed. That's when you caught fish. And so the fishermen who owned these boats had been doing that all night, we're going to find, to no avail. And what happened is when daylight came and the sun rose, you would come into the shore. And as a fisherman, you'd put your boat on the shore and you'd get out your nets and, and, and you would start mending them because inevitably when you went fishing, you'd get hung up on stuff and it would tear up your net. So you had to fix it and you washed your net and you prepared everything for the next evening's fishing expedition. And so that's the setting and that's what's going on. The bottom line is Jesus is here and he's got a problem. The fishermen have been fishing all night. They're tired. They're finishing up their work day with their nets and so forth. And so Jesus gets into Peter's boat. And he says, hey, Peter, can you push me out into the water? He needs some distance, right, between him and the people so that he can, he can preach and they can hear. And the water is going to, the distance is going to get him away so he can project further. And the water is going to act kind of like an amplification system for him to, to resonate his voice out to the people so that he can be heard floating pulpit, aquatic sound system. It's remarkable, right? Jesus is amazing. He comes up with great ideas. And Peter obliges him. Peter knows Jesus. And so he obliges him. And it's no coincidence that Jesus chooses Peter's boat. You see, the crowd, although he's going to preach, the crowd is not Jesus' primary mission on this day. Peter is Jesus' primary mission on this day. Though Peter has no clue. He and Peter are already acquainted. This isn't their first introduction. He already, as I've mentioned, knows Jesus. He already respects Jesus. He's positively inclined to help him out. But Jesus has plans for Peter that Peter doesn't know anything about. And choosing his boat to preach from is only step number one. And Peter cooperates. Good for Peter. But then comes a challenge. Look at verse four. When he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. Now this is a pretty remarkable encounter here. Once the sermon ends, Jesus' attention turns to his primary target, to Peter. And, and we're not told what he was teaching or what he was preaching that day to the crowd, but I suspect it had something to do with his kingdom and what it means to be a part of it. I suspect that what's about to happen is personal application of the sermon to Peter's life. 
You know, sometimes we hear sermons and they remain external to us. They don't become personal. We walk away and we, we say things like, well, I, I like that sermon, I, or I, I agree with what the pastor said today, or, or wasn't that enlightening, that, that was entertaining, that was inspiring, that was a good sermon. Sometimes you walk away going, oh, it's really, I enjoyed that sermon. You tell me those kind things, and I, I appreciate it. And I'm probably just sort of uh, living in a fantasy world. Probably more, than off, more often than not, it's, you know, the reaction is, you know, poor fellow, he gave it his best. But, but, but regardless, you walk away with thoughts. But quite often, those thoughts remain external in what's been said and what you've heard in 30 minutes is gone and forgotten because it never becomes personal because we don't act on it and nothing changes this wasn't the first sermon Peter ever heard at some level he had some trust in Jesus but the message of the gospel had not become personal to him yet it was still external to him and for that Jesus had a very vivid illustration planned and so he says to Peter Peter here's what I need you to do I need you to put out into the deep and I need you to put out your nets the nets that you just finished washing the nets that you just finished mending the nets you just finished getting cleaned up and ready for tonight's fish I need you to gather them up put them in the boat I need you to gather up the guys get them in the boat and we need to go out into the deep water and I want you to go out there and let's go fishing and through Peter's eyes every single thing about this request seemed absolutely ridiculous it was wrong on every front. It was the wrong time of day. No sane fisherman went out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee into the deep water in the middle of daylight and went fishing. Only inexperienced amateurs would try things like that. People who don't know how to fish, like me. I've gone on a couple fishing expeditions. The last one I went on was about 15 years ago. And uh, I was with a guy in a bass boat going down uh, one of the rivers here in Charleston. And uh, we were bass fishing. Well, you could call it that. He was bass fishing. I was, I was doing something, mostly getting hung up in the trees and the brush and everything else. Most of my day was spent doing this, trying to get my hook out of something other than a fish. And I, I told this story before, but I, one particular time it was hot and I was... I was frustrated and I was hung up in a tree. You know, I cast and it got stuck in a limb and I'm yanking and pulling and it's not coming loose. And I'm thinking, great, I'm gonna have to cut the line again and you know, all this stuff. And, and, and two old, older fellows who clearly were experienced fishermen come floating by in their boat. And one of them literally looks to the other and says out loud, hey, look at that fellow over there. He's squirrel fishing. <laughs> Said it loud enough to where I could hear it. He's squirrel fishing. You know, I'd like to tell you what I, how I, what I said, but it's inappropriate for the moment. It was under my breath and mumbling. Um, I've repented since then. But when you, when, you, when you see somebody doing that kind of stuff that I was doing, you know, that's just an amateur. He doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, a responsible, mature fisherman would not be fishing in the trees for squirrels. And, and this is the case here. No, no right-minded fisherman would be going out in the middle of the day and fishing in the deep, the depths of the, the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the day. It was absolutely the wrong time of day. It was the wrong location. Even if you were going to fish in daylight, you'd at least do it in shallow water where there might be a chance that some fish are, are high enough to, to get caught in your net if they wandered the wrong way. I mean, if you just got some 
lunatic fish that didn't know how to live, you might catch him. But it's the wrong time of day. It's the wrong location. He and all the other fishermen are tired and they're exhausted from a, a full night of fishing and they're frustrated because they fished all night and they haven't caught a, 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 you know, a blessed thing. Nobody is wanting to go back out and go fishing. In every way, it seems like an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. Now, Peter has enough sense to not say to Jesus, that's an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. So he says something a little more mild. He says, Master, which, by the way, is a title of respect. But you can sense his agitation in the response, can't you? We fished all night long. We fished all night and we caught nothing. I mean, he's seen enough of Jesus not to, uh, to, to, to outright reject what he's saying in object. But, but Jesus, we've, we've worked all night. We're professional fishermen, and we've gone to the right place, and we've done this the right way at the right time, and we've got nothing. You want us to go to the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's foolishness. As though he needs to remind Jesus what happened the night before. Peter's likely thinking something along these lines fishing is the one thing I know best it's the one thing I know best Jesus you're a carpenter I'm a fisherman I know how to fish you might know a, two, a thing or two about uh, uh, about you know a building and about sickness and about demons but I know fishing I know fishing in every way possible what you're telling me to do is a complete waste of time probably what Peter is thinking but to Peter's credit he says at your word what I'll do it at your word I'll do it though he's tired and he's ready for breakfast and he's ready for rest he obeys though he thinks it's a huge waste of time he obeys though he has no idea why Jesus would want him to do something so utterly ridiculous he obeys and it tells us the first thing we need to understand about what it means to trust in Jesus Trusting in Jesus means obeying him even when I don't understand. It means obeying him even when I don't understand. Peter has to learn that. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're waiting around until you understand everything to trust fully in Jesus, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. The odds are you'll never trust in him because there will always be something you don't know. But the good news is you don't have to understand everything to fully trust in Jesus. It doesn't have to all make sense. You don't have to solve all the Bible's mysteries. You don't have to understand all there is to understand about the Bible. You don't have to sort out all your theology. You don't have to have all your questions answered. You just need to make a choice and a decision to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of what you don't know. It means starting from a standpoint that says, I don't know everything there is to know Jesus, but here's what I do know. I'm willing to obey you and follow you regardless. Well, this thing turns out better than Peter could have ever imagined. Look at verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they, they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Now this had to be like, there are times in history that I'd love to just be a bird flying over to watch it, right? This is one of those that I would love to see. Because you know what the scene was like, right? You know that these grumpy, tired, discouraged fishermen who think this is a complete waste of time are probably all the way out there grumbling under their breath and rolling their eyes, right? 
what are we doing out here? This is the stupidest thing ever. We're not going to catch a fish. I'm tired. I'm hungry. You know how this goes, right? It's called reluctant obedience. It's Father's Day. I just thought of this. And I know all you dads and husbands out there have never, uh, don't have any experience with, with reluctant obedience. Do you in your home? Has your spouse ever told you to do something or asked you to do something and you thought, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Why would I do that? But they really want you to do it and you're caught in that vortex. Well, what do I do? Do I tell them that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard? Or do I reluctantly just do it? Or there is another option, a godly option. I joyfully and cheerfully serve my spouse and my family. But you and I know, let's be honest, that's not always our first response. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Uh, That was a weak one, but I know it's true. I know it's true. But you know what reluctant obedience is. That's like, I'm going to do it, but I think it's a dumb idea. And I let you know that by my eyes and my grumbling and my gestures. Come on, you know what this is like. That's what these guys were doing. I know that's what they were doing. Get out there and they throw their nets down with all that going on. And all of a sudden, they start pulling on the net. And lo and behold, they feel something tugging on the other end. And no doubt their eyes would light up with with, with fear and excitement all at the same time. Instead of pulling the net up to the boat, the net's so full that they can't pull it to the boat, that the net is literally ripping at its seams because of all the fish that are in the net. And immediately panic ensues, and they start yelling out to the other boat, you got to come help, you got to come help. And so the other guys come quickly, and they all start pulling at these nets to try to bring in this catch of fish. And it's so much fish that they literally fill up both boats to where they're on the verge of sinking in the deeps, the depths of the sea. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen the look on their faces? They're pulling that thing up and they're seeing all those fish flopping around, trying to get them madly in the boat, trying to keep from sinking. I mean, I could just see those two boats kind of rowing back in, coming back into shore, right? Barely above the waterline, fish flopping everywhere, eyes this big with a story to tell everybody that nobody is going to believe without seeing. Peter is sitting there the whole time, and he's thinking this. Fishing is the one thing I know best. It's the one thing I'm an expert at. It's the one area where I probably have a right to instruct Jesus. And Jesus vividly shows him that even in the one area where he is an expert, Jesus is infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. And the gulf between the two is absolutely inconceivable. It isn't even close. Peter's been fishing all night long, and he came up completely empty. He went to the right place at the right time and did it the right way and got nothing. Jesus goes to the wrong place at the wrong time, and he gets a Guinness Book of World Records catch. Peter realizes immediately that he and Jesus are not in the same league. And there's no comparison. This isn't about fish. And it isn't about fishing. And it isn't even about miracles. It's about Jesus showing Peter exactly who he is. And it's about Jesus showing Peter exactly who he is. He's showing him that he's the sovereign creator. 
He's the sovereign creator. Jesus didn't have just good insight. He, he didn't get a good tip from one of the locals about a good fishing spot. That's not possible. If they'd caught a handful of fish, maybe somebody would believe that, right? But with what happened, that's not even imaginable. The sheer over-the-top volume of the catch makes it absolutely undeniable. Jesus is the Lord of the fish. He's the maker of the fish. He's the director of the fish. They go where he tells them anytime he tells them to go there. And if he tells the whole sea full of fish to get in a net in the middle of the day in the depths, they go. He made the fish. He knows the fish. He directs them at his will. He can fill two boats full any time, day or night. Just as he commands demons and he commands disease, he commands the fish. Because he's the sovereign creator of all, and only God can do that. He's not just a sovereign creator, he's a holy creator as well, isn't he? He's not just a creator who rules the creation, but he's a perfectly righteous one who's far above all creation, who's altogether separate and different. He's in a class all his own. He has no competition. He has no equal. He has no rival. He's perfect in every way. He's right in every single thing that he does. And all of this becomes very vivid to Peter in this moment. And Peter instantly knows who he is. And he instantly knows who he is in contrast. Peter looks at himself and he says, even in the area where I'm the smartest, I'm not even in the right zip code. I'm not even in the right universe with Jesus. He thought he knew something about fishing. But compared to Jesus, he was a completely ignorant and utter fool. He, he thought he was a pretty good guy, but compared to Jesus, he immediately knows that he is a sinful, foolish, wretched man. And that tells us something else about what it means to trust in Jesus. And I just put it as a statement like this. I must trust in Jesus because he is the sovereign and holy creator. He deserves my trust because he's exalted far above all things. He is God in human flesh. And even in the area where I'm the smartest, I don't even get near to the edge of the universe in which he exists. And I could try all my life and never get close. He wanted Peter to see this gap. And he wants you to see that gap. He wants you to see that he's your creator that he's far above you in every way and the gulf between you and him is absolutely infinite and compared to him you're small and you're weak and you're ignorant and, and you can never close the gap your only hope is to place your trust in him Peter gets it, verse 8, listen when Simon Peter saw it he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Peter's reaction is quite remarkable. Everybody else is scrambling around trying to figure out how to get the fish in the boat and celebrating this miraculous catch, but not Peter. He's not running around celebrating anything. He fell down on his face at Jesus' feet. And he says, Jesus, you've got to get away from me. You've got to get away from here. I can't even be near you. 
He is so struck by who Jesus is, by his glory, by his holiness, by his power. In fact, by his love and his patience with Peter, all he can do is fall on his face in front of Christ. And he's suddenly so ashamed of himself that he feels completely unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, go away. I am a wretched man. I'm a wretched man. Peter had already seen a lot from Jesus. He'd seen him exercise a demon. He'd seen him heal his mother-in-law. He'd seen him heal a bunch of sick people. But all of that was outside of Peter. All of that was external to Peter. It had not yet become personal. Peter, Peter knew a lot about Jesus, but he hadn't fully trusted Jesus. And so Jesus comes to Peter in the most personal area of his life, fishing. He comes to him in the area where he is the most self-confident and he shows him how infinitely superior he is. And all of a sudden, Peter's eyes are open. He sees Jesus' infinite power and he sees his infinite righteousness. And in contrast, he sees his own weakness and his own unrighteousness. He can't hide behind any false facade anymore. He can't compare himself with other people and tell himself, yeah, I'm a pretty good person anymore. His sinfulness is exposed and it's undeniable. And Peter has no excuse and he has nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. So he does the only reasonable thing any human being does in that situation. He falls on his face before Jesus, confessing his holiness and his own unrighteousness. Now Jesus has Peter exactly where he wants him, doesn't he? Peter fully understands the bad news of the gospel. The fact that he's a wretched sinner. The fact that Jesus is perfectly righteous. The fact that there's a gulf between the two that's infinite and that he has no hope of ever crossing that gulf on his own. You see, what Jesus is doing is driving him to repentance and teaching him what it means to trust in him. And so that brings us to another thought. Trusting Jesus means recognizing my sinfulness and his perfect righteousness. It means recognizing that. It's what Peter recognized immediately when the fish were flopping everywhere. It had to be a sight. Listen, as long as you and I are trying to convince ourselves that we're good people, we'll never fully trust Christ. As long as you and I are still trying to make excuses for our sin, we'll never fully trust in Christ. As long as you and I are, are still trying to blame other people for our sin, we won't fully trust Christ. As long as you and I are thinking all we really need in our life is just to become a little more religious, go to church a little more, pray a little more, read our Bibles a little more, we'll never fully trust in Jesus. We have to get to the place where we recognize our own sinfulness and his perfect righteousness and understand there's nothing I can do, nothing we can do to bridge the gap. Our only hope is what he'll do for us by his grace. Peter has, he's right where, Jesus has him right where he wants him. I'm gonna pause right now and confess, I have no idea what time it is. My watch says it's 10 minutes till, is that right? Can somebody tell me? Okay, this one here has said the same time for the last 30 minutes and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be gracious to you and realize this could go really poorly. We could blow through lunch and, and uh, we don't want to do that. Verse 10. After Jesus brings him to contrition, he, he, he gives him a commission. Listen, Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Simon. You don't have to fear me like that. From now on, you'll be catching men. Peter, I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm not departing from you. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. Now that we've established the foundation of our relationship, we can build on that. And I have some radical plans for your life. I'm about to transform you into someone who is completely different. I haven't come to reject you, Peter. I've, on the contrary, I've come to embrace you. I've come to call you to myself. I've, called to, I've come to commission you to serve my kingdom, man. So it's not about pushing you away, Peter. It's about drawing you in. It's not about telling you to get away from me because you're unworthy. It's getting you to realize you're unworthy and then realizing that it's on that very platform that you come to me and I receive you and I fill you with everything that you're lacking and I forgive you and I pour out my grace and my mercy on you and I transform you into something that you cannot be on your own. Peter, I haven't come to reject you. I've come to transform you. And what that's going to look like in your life is this, Peter. No longer are you going to be spending your days fishing for live fish and making them dead. You're going to become a man who goes fishing for dead men and makes them come to life. That's what's going to happen in you, Peter. I've got plans for you, man. I'm not getting away from you. It's the last thing I plan to do. Peter, I don't need your skill. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your goodness. I don't even need your intellect. What I need is for you to trust in me, and I need you to follow me, and I'll take care of all the rest. I can hear Peter saying, well, how in the world are we going to do that? How am I going to catch men? I am a fisherman. I know how to catch fish. How am I going to catch men? And I can hear Jesus saying exactly the way you just caught fish. You're going to go where I tell you. You're going to drop your nets where I tell you, and I'm going to fill it with fish. That's what's going to happen. You're going to go where I tell you to go. You're going to say what I tell you to say, and I'm going to bring men to myself through you. That's what's getting ready to happen, Peter. It's another lesson in trusting Jesus. Trusting Jesus means coming near to him. It means surrendering control of my future. That's what he's teaching Peter. Peter, I don't want to push you away. I want you to come near, and I want you to let go of your future. Let go of your life and trust it to me. And let me take you where I want you to go instead of you taking you where you want to go. Let, let go of control of your life and trust it to me. Peter learns what it means to trust in Jesus. That means to stop trying to be righteous on our own. It means to stop trying to make excuses for our sin. It means to stop trying to control our own lives and do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. It means we stop trying to tell him how everything needs to go in our world and in our life and just expect him to, to, to make good on it like, like some cosmic vending machine. It means saying, Jesus, here's where we are. I'm, I'm a wretch, and you're infinitely holy, and I can't close the gap. So here's the deal. I can't save myself, only you can save me. So I'm coming to you on that basis. Understanding the nature of a relationship begins there. And I'm giving you my life. Whatever I controlled before, it's now yours. You control it. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. Even if I don't understand it. Even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense like that fishing expedition we just went on. But that's okay. You've got control. You're the captain now. Surrendering your future. Surrendering control. That's precisely what Peter and these others did. Verse 11, 
when they had brought their boats to land. This is remarkable. Remember, the boats are full of fish, this record-setting catch. I mean, you, 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 know, you know how fishermen are, right? You catch a big fish. You want to go tell everybody you caught a big fish, right? Yeah, you want them to see that you caught a big fish because they're going to say, oh, no, you didn't. That fish wasn't that big. It was really that big. You're a fisherman. You made it bigger. You know these guys. Any regular fisherman want to go to town and tell everybody about this catch. Get somebody come take pictures, put it on the, uh, the first century internet, right? What do these guys do? They pull up to shore. They leave everything and they follow Jesus. They leave the boats. They leave the fish. They leave the nets. They follow Jesus. At this point, they had no idea what it was going to look like. They just trusted Jesus and they followed. At this point, they had no idea how they were going to make a living. They just trusted Jesus and they followed him. They had no idea how they were going to catch men. They just trusted Jesus and they followed him. And that brings us to the last piece here. Trusting Jesus means following Jesus regardless of the cost. It just means following him regardless of the cost. Lord, here's my life. It's yours. And I'm going to follow you. From this day forward, I'm just following you. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. You want me to stay in my career? I'll stay in my career and I'll do it for your glory and your honor. You want me to change careers and do something else? I'll do that too, even if it doesn't make any sense or I don't know how to do it or how it's going to work out. If that's where you're calling me to go, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, whatever it costs, I'm yours and I'll follow. It means releasing control of today and tomorrow releasing control of our careers, our hobbies, our things, our ambitions, all the things that pull the levers of our life. Just follow Christ. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, that meant leaving fishing. That meant leaving their home. That meant becoming itinerant missionaries with Jesus. Taking the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It ultimately meant dying for Christ. And these men followed him to the death. For me, it hasn't meant those things. It's meant dying to some fears, trusting Jesus to help me do something that, to operate in the area of my greatest fears for most of my life. For you, I have no idea what it means. I have no idea what it means for you. What I do know is it means this. It means trusting him and it means following him wherever he goes and wherever he leads you, one step at a time. And that journey begins with the first step. If that first step hasn't happened in your life, today needs to be the day of that first step. If you're not fully trusting in Jesus, why not? And what are you waiting for? You need to take the step today. You don't have to know how it's all going to turn out. You don't have to understand all the implications. You just have to come to the point where Peter did, where you realize, you know what? I can't control this anymore. My only hope is Christ. My only hope for now or for the future is trusting in him. It's surrendering control to him and letting him take me wherever he wants me to go and glorifying him every step along the way to the best of my ability. Have you done that? Have you fully trusted in Jesus or is he still external to you? When you sit here this morning listening to yet another sermon, 
Are you sitting here like Peter on the morning of this day or on the afternoon of this day? Where the sermon is still external like in the morning? Where you've learned something interesting about the lake of Gennesaret? You've got a better picture of Jesus and Peter, but it isn't personal? Or has Christ made himself come alive in your very midst this morning? Do you see him where he is and you where you are and understand that your only hope is to fully trust in him, to hand over your life, say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. You're my only hope. From this day forward, I'm yours. Whatever that means, wherever you want me to go, whatever the cost, I'm going and I'm doing to the best of my ability. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, why not? Why not right now? Why not right now as we bow our heads and close our eyes? You just come to him like Peter did in the middle of that fishing expedition. Lord, I'm, 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 I'm wretched. And what, what I really feel like is I feel like I need to get out of your presence because you're glorious and I'm not. But you've offered to me to come and you've told me that you would forgive me if I ask, that you are willing to take control of my life and make something of it that honors you and that has impact for all eternity. And so I come, just giving you my life, whatever that is, whatever's left of it, it's yours. My career, my relationships, my hobbies, my time, my energy. Everything that makes me me is yours. I don't have to know what the future holds. I'm just willing to follow you one day at a time, one step at a time from this day forward. I'm going to trust you along the way to help me. There's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. You just, in your own way, you say something like that to him. And the Bible says, on the authority of God's word, I'll tell you, he will change you like he changed Peter. He'll save your very soul. He'll forgive your sins. And he'll receive you to himself. Lord Jesus, you're glorious beyond measure. Your love and your patience is remarkable. Your grace, extending mercy and forgiveness to folks like us, whom you'd have every right to reject, is remarkable. And yet you don't do that. You help us to see our sin just so you can draw us close to yourself and forgive it. You help us to see our inability to control our own lives, not to make us afraid, but so you can draw us to yourself and take charge. You see our inability to do anything of eternal value with our own mind and thoughts and talents and intellect, and you make us see that just so you can draw us to yourself and you can take who we are and what we are and make it glorious and make it have eternal impact. And Lord, there are some this morning who, like Peter, that early morning, this has all been just external to them. It hasn't become personal. They've never bowed before you and fully trusted in you. I pray that right now in this room, in this moment, you would call them to yourself and they would obey like Peter, that they drop their nets and follow you. No turning back. 
by your spirit. Make it happen for your glory, we pray. Amen.